Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 welcome to the georgine rice show podcast this program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 kpdq we hope you enjoy the show well good afternoon and welcome to the wednesday edition of the georgine rice show glad to have you with us clark hilton is engineering james blend is producing today's program Today, we're going to talk with Paul Kent. He is the author of Oswald Chambers, A Life in Pictures. It's a great book. You can put it on your coffee table. But if you are a fan of um, Oswald Chambers, this will give you a glimpse into his life. Certainly uh, facts that I was unaware of, and you might enjoy it as well. He'll be joining us in the five o'clock hour. By the way, portions of today's program are brought to you by Zero Res. (sighs) Berkeley Johnson and his wife, they climbed onto the roof of their uh, their house in Montecito, after uh, boulders and mud splashed into their uh, their building, uh, the result of a deadly California mudslide that's ongoing. They tell us the um, death toll is up to 15. It could possibly be more with a couple of um, a dozen, 24 people still unaccounted for uh, as of this afternoon. Uh, we don't know where it came from, but we got it. Uh, but we got out, got the um, uh, mud. Uh, Everywhere in our home, all over ourselves. They said as they were there on the roof of their home, they heard a baby's cry. They didn't know um, much about the child, but they found uh, the child. They got the mud out of that child's mouth. Um, they say they hope the child is okay. This was an infant, apparently. Um, the the, the uh, baby was taken to a local hospital for treatment. Its condition remains unknown at this time. In another rescue captured on social media, there was a 14-year-old girl. She was caked in mud from a collapsed Montecito home where she'd been trapped for hours. We don't know about her family or any other details. She is heard saying on social media, I thought I was dead for a minute there. She was dazed. And again, she was taken away on a stretcher uh, to be examined. Well, the death toll from the mudslides in California unleashed by a powerful winter storm is expected to rise uh, today. Rescuers continue to dig through the destruction caused by the powerful mud flows that swept away dozens of homes. Around two dozen people remain missing, at least as of this afternoon, according to a spokesman for the Santa Barbara County. We have no idea where they are. We think uh, somewhere in the debris field, adding the damage is spread over 30 square miles. So this is a uh, a rescue effort that is um, is very challenging. More than a half inch of rain fell in five minutes on Tuesday, officials says. Right now, our assets are focused on determining if anyone is still alive in any of those structures that have been damaged. The Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Office uh, says in a news conference, uh, he went on to say, and this is Sheriff Bill Brown, uh, that there are at least several dozen homes that have been either destroyed or severely damaged and likely many other uh, homes are in areas that are, as of yet, inaccessible. Most deaths were believed to have occurred in uh, uh, Montecito, uh, an upscale community located just outside Santa Barbara. The wealthy enclave uh, of about 9,000 people northwest of Los Angeles is home to celebrities like Oprah Winfrey and Rob Lowe and Ellen DeGeneres. The region was threatened last month by the state's largest wildfire in modern history, which led to vegetation being burned 
uh, burned over zones susceptible to destructive mudslides because scorched earth doesn't absorb water well and the land is easily eroded when there are no shrubs. And that was the uh, the reason this occurred this time around. Said one uh, victim, it sounded like a freight train coming down the hill. You could hear those uh, boulders rolling down. The whole house was shaking, said one survivor. Authorities have been bracing for the possibility of catastrophic flooding because of heavy rain in the forecast for the first time in 10 months. Evacuations were ordered beneath the uh, recently burned areas of Santa Barbara, Ventura, and Los Angeles counties, but only an estimated 10 to 15 percent of people in a mandatory evacuation area uh, heeded that warning, according to authorities. I'm certain that number will rise now uh, that we've seen fatalities. U.S. Highway 101, the linking, uh, the link rather, connecting Ventura and Santa Barbara, uh, looked like a muddy river and is expected to be closed um, for at least a couple of days. Um, uh, the uh, neighboring uh, com- communities where this uh, tragedy took place are beneath the uh, scar left by the Thomas fire, which erupted in uh, in December, became the largest ever recorded in California. That blaze spread over more than 450 square miles, destroying 1,063 homes and other structures. And now these uh, homes that are the victim of the landslide are added to that number. Remember our neighbors uh, to the south in prayer. Well, in other news, the mainstream media is abuzz over Senator Dianne Feinstein's unilateral decision to release a semi-redacted transcript of the Senate Judiciary Committee's closed-door meeting with Fusion GPS co-founder Glenn Simpson last August. As the ongoing investigation into Russian election meddling continues to roll on and as more information is, uh, is learned, this latest move by the senator is somewhat puzzling. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck, uh, Chuck Grassley was, recently, was certainly not pleased, saying her action undermines the integrity of the committee's oversight work and jeopardizes its ability to secure candid, voluntary testimony relating to the independent recollections of future witnesses, end quote. He further notes that none of the other congressional panels had released interviews transcripts of closed-door meetings related to the Russia interference investigation. Well, Senator Feinstein may be reacting to Grassley's recent criminal referral of the British ex-spy Christopher Steele, author of the infamous um, anti-Trump dossier, to the Justice Department. Grassley wants the Department of Justice to investigate Steele for possibly lying to the agency. Feinstein may also not like the fact that the investigation has started to probe more deeply into Clinton and Democratic National Committee connections to Fusion GP. Whatever her rationale, her actions may inform the public while at the same time muddy the investigation. Whether or not she had the authority, I, I can't answer that question, but she certainly sits on the committee as a senior member. So what has been learned from Simpson's interview? It's clear that he and Fusion GPS are worried about protecting themselves, as anyone would under investigation. Simpson attempted to absolve himself of any guilt regarding the promotion of misinformation with the uh, dossier, saying, uh, by its very nature, the question of whether something is accurate isn't really asked. The question that is asked generally is whether it's credible. You don't really decide who's telling the truth. Simpson argued it wasn't his job to ascertain whether or not the dossier information was true. He explained his reason for giving the dossier to Senator John McCain, saying we just wanted people in official positions to ascertain whether it was accurate or not. I'm not sure how John McCain would be in a position to make that determination, but the transcript also 
Uh, shows how Simpson conveniently flips, seeing Russian connections as uh, both good and bad, depending on his relationship with the Russians. The short of it is uh, being that he saw no conflict of interest in his work for the Russians, Russian firm Prevazan Holdings, uh, while at the same time arguing that Trump's campaign was guilty of collusion. Now, there's a difference between a private entity and a political campaign. I'll grant uh, that. But um, again, that's what the documents apparently revealed. Simpson appears to have been convinced that the Trump team was guilty of colluding with Russia, but we also learned that Simpson based this belief on the dossier that he admits he never verified for accuracy. He sees ex-spy Steele as a trustworthy individual and that even if there were holes in the accuracy of the information, he believes that the overall narrative is essentially true. In other words, for Simpson, the political endgame was more important than facts and truth, which were neither verified. Uh, meanwhile, the president uh, blasted uh, Diane Feinstein, with whom he met just yesterday in a meeting that some have given glowing reports over, at least for its openness, referring to her now as sneaky Diane Feinstein. When asked to respond to the uh, moniker given to her by the president, she simply said, well, I'm not the first. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we come back, we'll let you know about the 36 House GOP members who are vacating their seats. What does that mean for the midterm elections and for the um, balance of power in Washington? We'll try to bring you some perspective. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 18 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. By the way, later on in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Paul Kent. He's the author of Oswald Chambers, A Life in Pictures. Very interesting biography. Uh, that's coming up in the next hour of today's program. Well, so far, 36 House GOP representatives have uh, announced they plan to vacate their seats. And by the way, earlier today, that uh, number went up to 37. It's going to be extremely interesting to see how this November's election plays out. To date, 36 Republican representatives have either resigned or announced that they are retiring or seeking another office, according to the House Press Gallery's casualty list, as they call it. This is more than uh, twice the number of departing Democrats. Republicans currently have a 46-seat lead in the House, 239 Republicans versus 193 Democrats, meaning Democrats will need to flip two dozen seats to regain the majority. Well, how likely is that to happen? Well, the answer is it depends. As long as the Republican casualty list grows, the outlook could brighten for Democrats. Republicans will likely retain control of most of these seats because of the states they're in, but other seats are less definitive. One example in California, Representative Ed Royce just published a statement in which... um, He announced this will be his final year of the Foreign Affairs Committee chairmanship and, by extension, his congressional career. Well, as Hot Airs, um, it's a la Pundit explains, one of their contributors, Royce's seat isn't nearly as safe from Democrats. Royce is uh, probably the party's only chance of holding the seat, and even that was not sure. Without him, California 39 likely turns blue. Well, this is a quagmire, both statistically and ethically. On the one hand, Republicans need to retain as many seats as possible, but Royce has been on Capitol Hill for a quarter century. As Ala Pundit explains, he cannot remain chairman of the House Foreign Relations Committee because of committee term limits enacted by the Republican Party. This is the likely reason for his vacating, which is ironic. In one sense, he's hanging up the cleats because of committee chair term limits, yet he's been a lawmaker in the House for 25 years. Term limits did end up ending his career in the House, but not in the way that you'd expect. Also, um, Alapundit continues, Royce is the 17th 
um, committee chairman in the House to announce his resignation this year, faced with the prospect of running an uphill uh, race in November and winning, only to return to the House as a backbencher instead of the committee's head honcho. He decided to pack it in. In other words, the inevitable reality of his or others uh, going back to a second-tier status prompted his retirement. Some voters who support term limits also support doing anything and everything to retain the majority, including electing someone time and time again. No one is saying the solution is an easy one, but they might not uh, be able to have it both ways. And while it's proving exceptionally difficult for Congress to adopt term limits for everyone, or anyone for that matter, these cases uh, show that they do work. After all, most were committee chairs only because of the power uh, that came with it. Finally, Daryl Issa, as I mentioned, announced he too will seek re-election, or rather will not seek re-election. Stay tuned um, as the exits exit uh, uh, role is getting perhaps a bit more crowded. Well, as I mentioned, California Representative Issa, the Republican who investigated uh, some of the biggest scandals of the Obama presidency, is retiring from Congress at the end of his term. He announced, throughout my service, I worked hard and never lost sight of the people our government is supposed to serve, he said in a statement. Yet, with the support of my family, I've decided that I will not seek re-election in California's 49th district. Issa is 64. He served as the chairman of the House Oversight Committee from 2011 to 2015, where he had uh, led hearings into the IRS scandal, the attack on Benghazi, and the Fast and Furious operation. In that role, he famously tangled with Democratic Representative Elijah Cummings, the top Democrat on that panel, and former IRS official Lois Lerner, and was a familiar presence on television. He tweeted that serving in Congress has been the privilege of a lifetime. He's a former businessman. He was first elected to Congress in 2001, but he was uh, facing an uphill battle in his reelection after defeating his Democratic challenger by less than a percentage point in 2016. Democrats are eyeing that seat as a potential pickup opportunity in the midterm elections later this year. ISA is the 30... uh, uh, 30th Republican to retire, uh, to retire from Congress this cycle. His retirement follows a slew of other well-known Republican lawmakers stepping down from Congress with Foreign Affairs uh, House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Ed Royce announcing his retirement earlier this week, as I mentioned. Other Republicans who aren't running for re-election, including Pennsylvania, or rather include Pennsylvania Representative Bill Schuster, the chairman of the House Transportation Committee, Texas Representative Joe Barton, the former chairman of the House Committee on Energy and Commerce, uh, Texas Representative Jeb, I'm glad I don't have to continue saying his name, Hensarling, chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, and Virginia Representative Bob Goodlot, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, and the others um, that I mentioned uh, earlier. Well, the federal judge in San Francisco on Tuesday barred the Trump administration from turning back the Obama-era DACA program, which shielded more than 700,000 people from deportation. U.S. District Judge William Alsup, an appointee of uh, President Bill Clinton, ruled that the program, I always hate mentioning who appointed them. Unfortunately, many of the judges become more politicized than they were. uh, The position was intended to be, so I suppose it's relevant who appointed them, but... Uh, I'll I'll mention it. Uh, Anyway, he ruled that the program may stay intact while litigation is played out. That's not necessarily a setback. It does give more time, uh, one would assume, for resolving the issue. Alsop ordered that until a final judgment is reached, the program must continue, and those already approved for DACA protections and work permits must be allowed to renew them before they expire. Now, what the judge apparently did not take into account is that the U.S. Supreme Court has already essentially ruled on 
a similar situation with DAPA, that the president does have the authority to end the program. So once it reaches the Supreme Court, there's no question that it will be overturned. But for the time being, the timeline has been extended. Dreamers who have never received a DACA protection, however, will not be allowed to apply. Alsop ordered the judge. Trump last year ended the Obama era deferred action for childhood arrivals program. He gave Congress until March to find a fix. Now that's been extended more likely to somewhere in June. The Department of Justice said in a statement that the ruling does not change the department's position on the facts. Uh, DACA was implemented unilaterally after Congress declined to extend those benefits to uh, uh, this same group of illegal aliens. As such, it was an unlawful um, a circumvention of Congress and was susceptible to the same legal challenges that effectively ended DAPA, the statement uh, read. And by the way, you might recall President Obama at the time announced that he understood that he did not have the authority uh, that he was about to exercise. Deferred action for parents of American uh, uh, Americans program was intended to keep the immigrant parents safe from deportation and provide them with a renewable work permit good for two years, but it was blocked by a federal judge after 26 states filed suit against the federal government and challenged the uh, effort's legality. President Trump said he was willing to be flexible on DACA in finding an agreement as Democrats warned that the lives of hundreds of thousands of immigrants hung in the balance. The Wall Street Journal reported yesterday that Trump appeared optimistic that Congress could reach a decision on the program, although he is notoriously overly optimistic on what can be achieved by simply getting it done. Uh, The president ended DACA in September. Immigration advocates estimate that more than 100 people a day lose the protected status because they did not renew their permits before the deadline. Uh, Trump is using border security, including a border wall, which you might recall from the meeting yesterday, as a bargaining chip. And Democrats want to use their sway on the spending bill to protect immigrants under DACA. The plaintiffs in the suit included, among others, attorneys general from California, Maine, Maryland, Minnesota and the University of California. Xavier Bacara, California's attorney general, filed a motion seeking the preliminary injunction in November, saying that the move is a violation of the U.S. Constitution, causes irreparable harm to DACA recipients. Bacara said in a statement late uh, Tuesday that the ruling is a huge step in the right direction. Well, it is a, a step anyway. America is and has been home to dreamers who courageously came forward, applied for DACA, and did everything the federal government asked them to. Uh, again, under authority, the president at the time said he did not possess. Well, the Congressional Budget Office released its score of the DREAM Act in 20, of 2017, a DACA amnesty bill that would provide legal permanent residence and eventually a path to citizenship for well over one million younger illegal immigrants. The CBO found that the DREAM Act would increase the federal budget deficit by $26 billion over a decade, mostly by conferring eligibility for federal benefits to the um, uh, the let's see, how are how are they putting this? amnestized. I didn't realize that was a word, but that's what they're referring to it. Introduced earlier this year by Senator Dick Dermott and uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, the uh, bill has become the DACA replacement of choice for congressional Democrats. Both Senate Minority Leader Schumer and House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi have said that they're committed to passing a Clean Dream Act to legalize DACA recipients and other similarly situated illegal immigrants. Uh, There's some dispute over what a clean bill would look like between 
this pair and the president. But the DREAM Act would direct the Department of Homeland Security to give lawful conditional status to those in the country who were under age 18 when they initially entered the country and have lived here for at least four years prior to the bill's enactment. Because of the DREAM Act's expansive eligibility criteria, the number of uh, immigrants who would benefit from the DREAM Act is a far higher than the DACA population uh, of about 790,000. So the the uh, ticket, uh, the price of uh, implementing that plan um, that Schumer and Pelosi are advocating would be $26 billion over the next decade. The CBO estimates that about 2 million illegal immigrants would be granted conditional lawful permanent resident status under the DREAM Act. Roughly 1 million of the 1.6 million people receiving unconditional uh, status would become naturalized U.S. citizens during the 2018-2027 period. The CBO cost estimate also states amnesty for that population would boost the deficit mainly through increased direct spending on Medicaid, health insurance subsidies, and food stamp benefits. On the revenue side, any tax gains from bringing uh, illegal immigrants on the books, in quotes, would be largely offset because increased reporting of employment income would result in increased in tax deductions. Uh, by businesses, according to the CBO's estimate. As a result, corporations will report lower taxable profits, pay less in income tax. Again, quoting from the CBO report, Democrats push for a clean uh, DREAM Act is unlikely to result in a DACA replacement before the end of the year, as immigration advocates and their allies on Capitol Hill have demanded. Though Republicans have expressed support for crafting a legislative fix, both the White House and the immigration hawks in Congress, they've insisted that any DACA replacement bill include border security enhancements, which you probably recall from the meeting with the president and uh, members of Congress uh, yesterday. Republican leadership has also rejected the idea of including DREAM Act provisions in the 2018 spending bill, which is due on Friday. So the uh, boxing max will continue for the next couple of, well, I guess this is uh, Wednesday, the next couple of days. We'll see what happens. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Later in the program, we're going to talk with uh, Paul Kent. He's the author of Oswald Chambers, A Life in Pictures, published by Discovery House. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just trying to, trying to annoy Clark. Please forgive me. It's my part-time job here. <laughs> If you could see the expression on his face when you you do something a little off, he's very professional. He's very precise. And if you're just a little off, you, you pretty much know it. So that was worth it. Well, China added to uh, bond investors jitters today as traders brace for what they feared could be the end of a three decade bull market. Senior government officials in Beijing reviewing the nation's foreign exchange holdings have recommended slowing or halting purchases of U.S. treasuries, according to people familiar with the matter. Well, the news comes as global debt markets were already selling off with signs that central banks are starting to step back after years of bond buying stimulus. Yields on uh, 10-year treasuries rose for a fifth day, touching the highest since March. Well, China holds the world's largest foreign exchange reserves at $3.1 trillion and regularly assesses its strategy for investing them. Well, that isn't... uh It isn't clear whether the officials' recommendations have been adopted. The market for U.S. government bonds is becoming less attractive relative to other assets, and trade tensions with the United States could provide a reason to slow or stop buying American debt. And the thinking of uh, these officials goes, according to uh, 
those same people who are in the know. China's State Administration of Foreign Exchange didn't immediately reply to uh, uh, facts seeking comment on the matter. Of facts, by the way. Michael Leister, who's a strategist at um, uh, Commerz Bank AG, says with markets already dealing with supply indigestion, headlines regarding potentially lower China demand for treasuries are renewing bearish uh, dynamics. Today's headlines will underscore concerns that the fading global quantitative easing bid will trigger lasting upside pressure on developed market yields. We'll see what happens. The Chinese officials did specify why trade tensions would spur a cutback in Treasury's purchase, though foreign holdings of U.S. securities have sometimes been a geopolitical football in the past, could be again. The strategies discussed in the review don't concern daily purchases and sales. Uh, the officials recommended that the nation closely watch factors such as outlook for supply of U.S. government debt, along with political developments, including trade disputes between the world's two biggest economies when deciding whether to cut some uh, treasure, uh, treasury holdings, uh, the people said. Now, some are suggesting the United States could simply uh, decide for a period to stop buying Chinese stuff. But then again, farmers are saying we need China to buy our stuff uh, in order for us to thrive. So it uh, it could be a serious issue. It could just be a Simple exercise in reviewing their options, but uh, many are poised to see what the the Chinese will ultimately do. Well, in other news, James Dammore, the uh, Google employee who was fired last year after his memo about diversity efforts at the company went viral, has filed a lawsuit against his former employer, Google. Uh, His suit, which is joined by another ex-Google engineer named David Goodman, claims that the company discriminates against conservatives and against white males. Damore and Goodman and other class members were ostracized, belittled, and punished for their heterodox political views and for the added sin of their birth circumstances of being Caucasian and or male, the lawsuit alleged. This is the essence of the discrimination. Google formed opinions about and then treated plaintiffs not based on their individual merits, but rather on their membership in groups with assumed characteristics, end quote. Google employees and managers strongly preferred to hear the same orthodox opinions regurgitated repeatedly, producing an ideological echo chamber, a protected, distorted bubble of groupthink, the lawsuit adds. When plaintiffs challenged Google's illegal employment practices, they were openly threatened and subjected to harassment and retaliation from Google. Well, the lawsuit itself um, can be downloaded. It paints a detailed picture of some specific instances at the company when senior executives told employees that race and gender were to be taken into account count in hiring and that this stance was not open for debate. On the 30th of March last year, Dan Moore attended a weekly uh, company-wide meeting called the TGIF meeting. Uh, These weekly meetings were used as an avenue for employees to connect and discuss certain topics involving Google. Well, the TGIF meeting on the 30th of March of last year was entitled Women's History Month, and Google brought in two presenters Uh, For this get-together, Ruth Porat and uh, the chief financial officer of Google and Eileen Naughton, the human resources director, both uh, Google employees. During the uh, uh, meeting, either Porat or... uh Uh, uh, Naughton pointed out and shamed individual departments at Google in which women comprise less than 50 percent or fewer than 50 percent of the uh, workforce. Alternatively, they applauded and praised departments such as the sales department where women comprise more than 50 percent of the workforce. During the event, Porout and Naughton also discussed that when looking at groups of people for promotions or for leadership opportunities on new projects, Google would, uh, would be taking into account gender and ethnic demographics. 
they then mention that Google's racial and gender preferences uh, in hiring were not up to up for debate because this was morally and economically the best thing to do for Google. At a subsequent gathering in June, the Diversity and Inclusion Summit, the same message was repeated. During a breakout session, Damore uh, spoke to a human resources person at the company about his concerns, and the HR person agreed with him. Uh, at the summit, he uh, spoke with uh, the Human Resources Department uh, and uh, said that uh, that individual from the company said that they agreed uh, that Google's uh, decisions were divisive and misguided. Specifically, uh, he mentioned that it seemed like Google was elevating political correctness over merit. Well, the human resources representative responded to the comment by stating some of the political things at Google were a problem. They discussed how some Google employees with conservative views and values did not feel included and the HR Uh, mentioned how she and other HR representatives had received similar complaints in the past from employees with conservative views. Well, Damore's memo, the one that uh, went viral and prompted his firing, was written in response to a call at the end of this diversity summit meeting for feedback on the presentation. It was asked for. It was given. A third diversity training in July was organized by the unbiased group, um, which Dan Moore expressed his concerns at that meeting too. Uh, he was laughed at. At the in-person training entitled Bias Busting, Google uh, discussed how biases against women exist in the workplace and how white male privilege exists in the workplace. The training was run by the unbiasing group at Google, and there were approximately 20 Google employees present. Dan Moore disagreed with the um, one-sided approach when he verbalized his dissent and his concerns with the one-sided presentation. Other employees, including managers, laughed at him derisively. They considered his views to be conservative and thus flawed and worthy of disparagement. Well, after he was fired in early August, Google allowed employees to give one another peer bonuses for disagreeing with him. The uh, Google recognition team allowed employees to give fellow employees peer bonuses uh, for that reason. Out, um, uh, bonuses were typically reserved for outstanding work performances or for going above and beyond an employee's job duty. Uh, defending the liberal agenda or defending violations of California's employment law is not in any Google employee's job description, and yet they were given bonuses for making fun of and uh, disagreeing with this former employee. Well, all of this comes from just the first dozen or so pages dealing with James Damore and his uh, firing. The lawsuit goes on to claim the company tolerated other employees recommending conservatives be fired for their opinions, not their performance. One employee, a manager, even recommended creating a blacklist of people who may diversity difficult. Again, not for their performance, but for their opinion. There was an interesting piece in National Review uh, on the very subject written by David French. We're going to take a a break here in just a moment. Then I want to share just a little bit of it um, uh, with you. It's dated today, January the 9th. And again, National Review online. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 51 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. In response to James Damore's lawsuit exposing Google's culture, um, David French, writing for National Review, says a lot, but uh, says this. Let's ponder a disturbing question. What of the crisis of free speech on college campuses, with their often extreme intolerance for conservative views, points of view, represents the high point for free expression in a student's life? In other words, what if the real world is more repressive and more punitive toward dissenting speech? What if entire corporations adopt the ideologies and norms of the most ruthless campus social justice warriors, ruining careers and 
and depriving employees of their livelihoods when those employees dissent from the dominant ideology. In other words, what if the rest of corporate America starts acting like Google. Again, David French writing for National Review, uh, dated today. You can find it at National Review Online. And finally, this. Google is, of course, the most powerful search engine in the world. It's now displaying fact checks on conservative publications in its results. No prominent liberal site received the same treatment. And not only is Google fact checking highly partisan, perhaps reflecting the sentiments of its leaders, it's also blatantly wrong, asserting sites made claims they demonstrably never made. Now, when searching for a media outlet that leans right, like the Daily Caller, Google gives uh, users details on the sidebar, including what topics the site typically writes about, as well as a section titled Reviewed Claims. Vox and other left-wing outlets and blogs like Gizmodo are are also given the same fact-check treatment when searching their names uh, and topics they write about um, section appears, but there are no reviewed claims. In fact, a review of mainstream outlets, as well as other outlets associated with liberal and conservative audiences, shows that only conservative sites feature the highly misleading subjective analysis. Several conservative-leaning outlets uh, like the D.C. are vetted, while equally partisan sites like Vox, Think Progress, Slate, The Huffington Post, Daily Kos, Salon, Vice, and Mother Jones are spared. Occupied Democrats is apparently the only popular content provider from that end of the political spectrum with a fact-checking section. Big-name publications like The New York Times, The Washington Post, L.A. Times are even given a column showcasing all of the awards they have earned over the years. The Robert uh, Mueller Fact check uh, is the case in point for Google's new feature. Well, ostensibly trying to sum up the crux of the post, the third party fact checking, in quotes, organization says the claim in the D.C. article that special counsel Robert Mueller, for example, is hiring people that are um, supporters of uh, the president's primary opponent in the election is misleading, if not false. The problem is that the D.C., uh, the article makes no uh, no such claim. They, uh, their cited language doesn't even appear in the article. Worse yet, there was no language trying to uh, make it seem that the investigation into the Trump administration in Russia is entirely comprised of uh, Clinton donors. The story simply contained the news. Mueller hired a Hillary Clinton donor to aid the investigation into President Trump. And Google saw fit to add the rest, which didn't appear in the article. So uh, beware and be careful as you're reading to try to determine what's actually being said in an article on a conservative site and the kind of helpful information and fact checking that Google is apparently uh, providing. Well, lawmakers here in Oregon um, unveiled their cap and investment carbon pricing bills. Cap and trade is essentially what it is, but they unveiled it today. And in the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk about uh, at least preliminarily what they're uh, going to be talking, uh, what they presented today and some of the uh, unanswered questions on the cap and trade carbon tax that's being proposed in the state. Also in the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Paul Kentz. He is the author of Oswald Chambers, A Life in Pictures, uh, and it is just that is a book that uh, provides a history of Oswald Chambers, which I found rather surprising. I knew a little about him. I assumed that uh, he was a popular writer in his day, only to learn that uh, his writings were compiled by his wife, who uh, took copious notes on virtually everything he said using uh, shorthand as a stenographer. And then uh, after his death at age 42, uh, said about uh, uh, transcribing them and and to the uh, publications that we all know and love. Um, uh, 
the devotional, I, I get it backwards quite often, so I'm not even going to try to say it, but for his highest, you can figure out the first part uh, among them. So we're going to talk with Paul Kent about that. Also, Open Doors has now released their World Watch list. And this is a compilation of the 50 top persecutors of Christians around the world. It's uh, released every year, and there are some pr- surprising uh, differences, some changes uh, from last year to this. But it also reminds us that there are significant numbers of believers who are facing persecution on a regular basis, as well as giving us some insight into what that persecution consists of. It's uh, it's heartrending to uh, to read, but it is a reminder that we need to be in prayer for them, and that in fact there is a presumption among many of them that in fact um, the belief is that we are praying for them as brothers and sisters in Christ. So. We're going to talk in the five o'clock hour about the world watch list, which, uh, by the way, you can find online either by uh, going to Open Doors website or looking for world watch list. Meanwhile, President Trump is set to join the ultimate cool kids club at the World Economic Forum in the Swiss uh, uh, town of Davos where he's expected to push his America first agenda, but how the uh, brash billionaire from Queens is going to be received at that uh, highfalutin meeting of globalist elites is far from clear. The White House announced uh, earlier this week that he's going to attend the World Economic Forum where international bigwigs, executives, and politicians rub shoulders. The White House says the president uh, and his America first focus will remain his top priority uh, at the event, which takes place the 23rd of January through the 26th. He'll return home Home, and on the 30th, we'll be presenting the State of the Union address. The White House Press Secretary um, Sarah Sanders Huckabee says the president welcomes opportunities to advance his America First agenda with world leaders. At this year's World Economic Forum, the president looks forward to promoting his policies to strengthen American business, American industries, and American workers. An American president hasn't visited that gathering since 2000 when President Bill Clinton attended, according to the New York Times. Uh, Trump did not attend the gathering last year with a senior transition official telling Bloomberg that uh, at the time, uh, Trump thought it would be betray his populist-fueled movement to attend. I'm not sure what he thinks this time around. A year later, and much has changed. Former chief strategist Steve Bannon, one of the main populist voices in the Trump White House, is no longer in the West Wing, or anywhere else for that matter. And other more receptive voices like senior advisor Jared Kushner and top economic advisor Gary Cohn, who has reportedly attended the summit before, are still uh, in place. Analysts suggest that while uh, Davos uh, represents a sort of globalist, supernational super approach, unlike the nationalist mentality Trump campaigned on, it could be a savvy move by the president, and he may feel at home in a more business-centric environment. Whether or not he's going to the lion's den, as Niall Gardner put it, um, uh, will remain to be seen. For Trump, Michael Cohen, director of the political management program at George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management, says for Trump, to, the calculation may be that this is where the CEOs are. This is where jobs are for my country. So this is what I'm going to do. He may see this as a business conference where he can uh, talk up the country and its resources and get more investment. It's a natural fit that he would uh, take his message to the financial chiefs and bankers at Davos, Niall Gardner, 
The director of the Heritage Foundation's Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom says Barack Obama couldn't have pulled this off, I think. Uh, But those hoping for a centrist-style pivot and a sweeping embrace of internationalism from the president are likely to be left disappointed. Uh, Trump's prior visits to big gatherings of elites who are more likely to be hostile to Trump's nationalist agenda, such as the NATO summit in Brussels, the G20 in Hamburg, or the United Nations General Assembly in New York, haven't resulted in a cowed Trump. So we'll see what happens, but he apparently is going. 59 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Six minutes after 5 o'clock is our time. A couple of things I want to bring your attention or draw your attention toward. There is an opportunity for a European Reformation tour with Alistair Begg. That's going to take place July the 31st through August the 12th. It's really a fascinating uh, trip. Uh, This coming summer, you can join Alistair Begg, fellow like-minded believers, for the Reformation Tour and River Cruise. That sounds like a blast, a Reformation Tour and River Cruise. You'll visit uh, fascinating historical sites that play an integral role in the Reformation, including European villages, stately castles and churches, and iconic cities in Leipzig and Vienna and Prague. Your time in Europe will only deepen your love of the Bible and the church. So you can book your trip today and join the teaching pastor, Alistair Begg, for the Reformation Tour and River Cruise, again, July the 31st through the 12th. All the details, the cost, and all of that, go to kpdq.com. Now, there's another opportunity available to you as well, the Experience Israel Tour with Tony and Lois Evans. You can experience the legendary land of Israel with teaching pastor Tony Evans and his wife this coming November for Experience Israel 2018. You'll stand in the Sea of Galilee, explore the remains of Nazareth, visit Jerusalem, where every stone pathway leads you toward the life of Christ and the story of God's purpose on earth. There'll be uh, gifted musical guests, Anthony Evans and Meredith Andrews. Uh, Your time in Israel is sure to be rich with spiritual meaning and impact. And again, for the details on that trip uh, in November, uh, you can go to kpdq.com. Uh, There's also a phone number, 855-448-7226. Again, 855-448-7226. So the trip to Israel is in November, the European Reformation Tour with Alistair Begg, July through August. So check that out at kpdq.com, which is a great place to go for all kinds of information, opportunities, and what's going on in our community. Well, lawmakers today unveiled their cap and invest carbon pricing bills. I, cap and invest. That just sounds more appealing than cap and trade. A new legislation would limit greenhouse gas emissions from transportation fuels, electric and gas utilities and large industrial companies. At least that's the goal. The cap and invest bills currently labeled as legislative concepts 44. That's the Senate version and 176, the House version, would establish limits on greenhouse gas emissions in the state. It would require the largest emitters to purchase allowances to cover their output. Now, proceeds from the allowances, but that would be the tax, uh, uh, allowance uh, auctions would be used to reduce emissions, cushion the cost effect on households and invest in communities disproportionately impacted by global warming, as defined by the Oregon legislature, including rural areas. The cap and the available allowances 
uh, would gradually ratchet down to meet the state's greenhouse gas emission goals, 45 percent below 1990 levels by 2035, 80 percent below 1990 levels by 2050, making noncompliance more expensive and incentivizing large emitters to make investments to reduce their emissions. Well, that's in principle. Uh, That's the bare bones concept. In practice, the program would be far more complicated, involving carve outs, free allowances for various industry sectors, possible linkage with allowance markets in California and Canada, a complex prescription for the use of the auction proceeds. In fact, opponents contend the legislation is so complicated that it can't possibly be adequately vetted in a 35 day session and should wait for next year's regular legislative session. Uh, but proponents, like the governor among them, contend that Oregon has already spent a decade dithering over limits on carbon dioxide emissions. So, you know, the details and the complication of this particular uh, plan uh, doesn't really matter. They just want to do something very quickly. Well, the bills would initiate a process of planning, program design, rulemaking lasting two to three years. So advocates insist it's important to get moving now to ensure a program is up and running by 2021. Uh, cap and trade was a subject that came up uh, significantly during the previous administration. This would be another version of it. Uh, this may be um, politically the the best chance for advocates of this whole thing, as the 2019 legislative session could see another budget nightmare with little appetite for complicated and potentially expensive climate bills with increasing public pension and health care costs and efforts to raise new taxes. So uh, the timing for um, uh, proponents uh, is pretty significant because, as I mentioned, there are other things that are likely to come for the the longer legislative session. Well, as they unveil their two draft proposals to impose cap-and-trade carbon tax schemes in the state, there are some critical questions that are being suggested. Uh, or The Oregon Catalyst, which is one of the uh, most reliable conservative sites on the web for the state of Oregon, uh, points out that some of the questions that should uh, be asked Uh, and should be part of the public record at the meeting today and the uh, discussions uh, moving forward, how much will this cost the average Oregonian? Because, make no mistake, it will cost you. How high will gas prices uh, rise? They will rise. How high will housing prices rise? How many businesses are expected to leave Oregon as a consequence of this cap-and-trade legislation? How will the money raised from the $700 million carbon tax be spent? And that's a big question. Uh, Who makes the decision about where that money is reallocated? Uh, If the cap-and-trade carbon tax raises prices and hurts businesses, and yet the tax reduces no meaningful emissions, what happens then, which is very likely the outcome? And finally, how can we trust your predictions, referring to the legislature, in light of previous failures like the billion-dollar green energy tax credit scandal, and who will take responsibility, and what will be done if they prove wrong? Well, many of these lawmakers will be long gone by the time, if it isn't implemented, by the time that all becomes uh, comes to full fruition— the uh, cap-and-trade um, carbon tax scheme will hit transportation the hardest. Gasoline and diesel prices will surely rise. It's likely Oregonians will pay about $4 a gallon for gas, but it could be even more. Uh, even proponents of the proposal have no reliable estimates of how much fuel prices will increase. The cap-and-trade carbon tax proposal will hit some employers harder than others. Food processors, for example, paper manufacturers argue that they won't be able to compete with out-of-state competitors if Oregon enacts this uh, cap-and-trade scheme. The increase in fuel prices will increase the cost of construction materials as well as the cost of construction activity itself. It's going to feed into higher housing costs, uh, uh, but as... um, 
Uh, at this point, even the bill's sponsors can't put a number on how much housing prices will rise. In the upcoming short session of 35 days, the legislature's bold proposal to impose this cap and trade on Oregonians uh, raises more questions than answers. Six weeks is not much time to work out the, the kinks in a very complicated scheme that's going to touch on the lives of every single Oregon resident and every single Oregon business. And yet today that was rolled out as uh, somehow being favorable and 35 days being enough time. Well, we'll see about that. Well, as promised, uh, up next we're going to talk with uh, Paul Kent. He is the author of Oswald Chambers, A Life in Pictures. And I know what you're thinking. This is radio. How are you going to appreciate a book? on the life of Oswald Chambers in pictures. We're going to talk mostly about his life, and the pictures certainly add a great deal of color to that uh, telling. But it's a, it's a fascinating uh, thing to uh, to examine the life of someone who's, um, who's writing, who's speaking. In fact, he didn't do any writing during his lifetime. Was not uh, all that widely um, read or popular at the time. He was certainly effective in the ministry he was involved in, in Egypt and the YMCA. Um, but it wasn't until his wife transcribed uh, his sermons that uh, and put together the books that are familiar to many of us, My Upnose for His Highest being the most popular, uh, did he, this, um, this man, this uh, evangelist and Bible teacher become widely known. So we're going to talk about the life of Oswald Chambers and the yeah, the people who influenced uh, his life as well. That's coming up next. And then in the uh, final segment of the program, we'll take a brief look at Open Door's uh, recently released World Watch List. It is a, uh, a listing, a record of countries in which it's most difficult uh, to be a follower of Christ. And we're going to take a look at changes in the list, some of the uh, the countries that remain the same in terms of uh, the, the violence against Christians and the order of that list. But that's coming up in our final segment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, one of the most loved devotionals of all time, my utmost for his highest, came from the mind and heart of Oswald Chambers. Though this Scottish preacher who died in 1917 wasn't widely known during his lifetime, his words have influenced millions over the decades and still do today. Well, now author Paul Kent presents Oswald Chambers' A Life in Pictures, published by Discovery House. It's a visual biography that gives insight into what influenced the man's thoughts and cemented his passion for God. It also gives you a glimpse of the uh, people who influenced his life and his family. I thoroughly enjoyed that. The book is beautifully crafted, uh, great. Great coffee table book. It makes uh, a treasured keepsake for any fan of Oswald Chambers. And it was released in time for the commemoration of the 100th anniversary of his death. Uh, It includes more than 180 images. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And while you don't have a copy in front of you to uh, enjoy and appreciate the pictures today, we want to paint a bit of a picture for you about this uh, this new volume. Well, Paul Kent served as nonfiction editor with a Christian book publisher in Ohio for 16 years before taking a position with Discovery House in 2014. He writes with a goal of spurring interest in the Bible for readers of all ages and backgrounds, and he's written 10 books and contributed to approximately a dozen others. He joins us today to talk about this latest volume, Oswald Chambers, A Life in Pictures. Paul Kent, welcome. Uh, thanks, Georgine. It's great to be with you. Well, I have to tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed the volume. I enjoyed seeing the pictures and learning um, aspects of his life that I, I really had no idea of, and uh, certainly of his family as well. So congratulations on a great book. 
Well, thank you. I, I think uh, Chambers is a fascinating character. Uh, you know, people know of him, but uh, you, you may have read my utmost for his highest, but actually learning a little more about who he is and where he comes from is, is really, really very interesting. Now, it's interesting that during his lifetime, certainly in the circles that he uh, was ministering, he was well known, but not widely known. Let's begin by talking about how books like his utmost for my, uh, let's see, my utmost for his highest came to be so popular because that was not uh, the product of his own effort. You know, it's true. I, I think you have to give a lot of credit to his wife uh, yes. for the, the history or the, the legacy that, that Oswald Chambers has. He was not truly an author. He didn't sit down to write books. He was a preacher and a teacher. So uh, everything that's in the books that carry Oswald's name is is from his mind. But uh, his wife, who was a very talented stenographer, took uh, very uh, detailed records of all of his speeches and, and sermons. And uh, after he died over a period of about 40 years, she assembled all of these things into the books that carry his name. In the introduction, you begin with uh, the, the page flanked on either side with images of Oswald Chambers on the left in uniform and on the right wearing the uh, broad-brimmed hat of his Australian soldiers. And you write, from opposite points of the globe, they were called to a military camp in the Egyptian desert. Soldiers from Australia and New Zealand following orders of the British Empire and a preacher from Scotland obeying a, fi- a far higher authority. Oswald Chambers arrived in Egypt in late October 1915 with much of Europe and the Middle East in the throes of World War One, It's not the, the place one would expect an introduction to start on the life and legacy of uh, a minister like Oswald Chambers. It is such a fascinating thing that, uh, you know, he died young in a war zone. And I, I think that's kind of the... Uh, that's really the compelling image we have of Oswald. He, he is wearing a uniform. He was not a soldier himself, but he was serving as a chaplain with the YMCA. Uh, he had done a number of things in terms of preaching and uh, teaching. He, he trained people for the ministry. But when World War I broke out, he just felt a burden to, to be there with the British soldiers. And um, so in Egypt, he, he was there serving with the Y. Um, uh, sadly, uh, from our perspective, he uh, had a, an attack of appendicitis. And uh, it seems kind of strange, but uh, that is what led to his death at the age of 43. Um, I think a lot of the people who knew him and loved him at the time, they just couldn't imagine why would God let this promising preacher and teacher die so young. But Uh, We can look back now from uh, the perspective of time and say uh, his death at that young age, I think, actually uh, led to all of these books that his wife uh, produced. And uh, now 100 years later, he's far better known and he's had a much greater ministry impact than than he might have otherwise. Well, and I appreciate it. I, I can't find it on the page right at this moment, but I appreciated the eloquent response. I believe what that was written by his wife, putting it into eternal perspective. Um, maybe it was uh, Jim Skidmore. Anyway, the, the depth of the response uh, and the sovereignty of God, I think, put in perspective that gave you some indication of not only who Oswald Chambers was, but something of the people that that worked with him in the uh, YMCA in the ministry. 
That's really true. You know, it's so interesting to read the comments uh, by the the people who knew him personally. I I think anytime somebody dies, of course, we we tend to speak well of them. But the the depth of the the comments of these people, uh, he just seemed like a very just a deeply committed Christian man, and he had this huge impact on the people around him. And I'm just struck by how eloquent and how, uh, you know, just uh, very impressive their own words Mm -hmm. and and thoughts uh, come across. In fact, it was Jim Skidmore who wrote, um, I I believe he was writing to Oswald Chambers' wife, uh, and he writes, we approach this phase of the mystery of his will with awe, and as we confess the narrow limits of our comprehension, we realize more fully how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. We take courage and feel that he is permitting us to enter into fellowship with his sufferings in the mighty conflict that is now being waged between God and Satan, there are more important fronts than the merely visible ones, and the Lord needs generals of his grace in the uh, heavenlies as much as or more than on the earth. Just a, a, a very mature response to the loss of a great, um, of a great man. Let's talk yeah, a little yeah. bit about Oswald Chambers uh, growing up. Tell us about this, uh, this Scottish young boy who became uh, a name known to many of us. Well, he was the seventh of eight surviving children of a uh, Baptist pastor and uh, and his wife, of course. Uh, interestingly, the, the Baptist pastor uh, comes across as a very uh, stern and, and dour man. And um, uh, Chambers' mom, uh, Hannah Chambers, apparently was a very sweet and uh, loving woman. And it seems like Oswald Chambers uh, really uh, leaned more toward his mother. He he really appreciated uh, his mother's approach to things. Uh, he was, as I mentioned, the seventh of eight children, uh, grew up in a Christian home. And um, uh, from a very early stage, his family said that, uh, you know, they could tell that even when he was a young boy praying, that there was something special about him. And uh, the family would even gather sometimes outside of his room to hear him praying in the evenings. Mm-hmm. So um, over time, interestingly, uh, Chambers ended up in a uh, Scottish uh, theological training college. And uh, the man who ran that college, uh, Duncan McGregor, almost really became more of a father figure to him. You, you see uh, uh, Oswald talking a lot more about Duncan McGregor maybe than his own father, even though there was definitely a love, there was a there was a big difference between him and his father. And um, uh, you do see that he really picked up, I think, a lot of his qualities from his mom. Um, he was born the same year, uh, Oswald Chambers, as Winston Churchill, Herbert Hoover, G.K. Chesterton, um, uh, uh, Lucy Maud Montgomery, uh, Robert Frost, uh, an interesting time, and his contemporaries uh, were uh, men and women of some accomplishment. Who were some of the other individuals that influenced the life of uh, the young Oswald Chambers? Well, I did just mention this uh, Duncan McGregor. He was a Scottish pastor who had started a theological training school at, at Danoon, Scotland. And uh, he had a huge, huge influence on Oswald Chambers. Uh, There were other friends and uh, uh, acquaintances throughout time. Um, His first pastor, uh, who was not his own father, of course, he went to his father's church uh, through most of his boyhood. But at about age 16, he ended up in a church uh, with a a different pastor who he said was a a big influence on him. Uh, There were just a number of people like that, but also um, many people who wrote books. Uh, Chambers was a, a voracious reader. 
And he picked up a lot of things from both uh, Christian writers, but even uh, some who wouldn't have claimed to be Christians. He, he just seemed to learn and uh, pick up uh, details and facts and, and perspectives on life from, from all kinds of, of reading that he did. And he apparently was led to Christ by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Yes, that is a, a huge factor there. Interestingly, it was at age 15, you know, for this child who was so sensitive spiritually that his family listened to his prayers. He, he did not make a public confession of faith uh, until he was 15. He had gone to a Spurgeon uh, sermon or a Spurgeon uh, uh, session uh, shortly after he moved to London and uh, on the way home apparently told his father, you know, if he would have had a uh, uh, an altar call, I would have gone down. And his father said, well, son, you, you can be saved right now. And, and that's how that happened. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, we're talking uh, about the uh, wonderful illustrated book, Oswald Chambers, A Life in Pictures, published by Discovery House. Paul Kintz is the author. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, talking with Paul Kent. He is the author of Oswald Chambers, A Life in Pictures. And oh, what pictures they are. I, I have to tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed seeing these images. And, uh, you, you know, you're right that it brings something new and rich to the telling of his life story. So, again, I commend you for putting it together for our um, our edification and to help us better understand Oswald Chambers. Let's talk about the YMC of which he was a part. How did he make the connection? And tell us a little bit about the early YMCA that was very much an evangelistic organization. Yeah, my, my understanding is that the YMCA goes back to the 1840s, and uh, it, it is the Young Men's Christian Association. And the idea in the original uh, going, I, I think they were trying to uh, reach some of the men who worked in the factories of London, trying to, to give them some spiritual support. And keep them out of trouble, you know, alcoholism and, and things of that nature. Um, that the Y did work through many of the wars uh, of uh, really, you know, human history since that time. And uh, when World War I came around, the Y had uh, a number of what they called huts. Uh, they would put up these uh, buildings for the soldiers' use. And uh, each hut had a superintendent. There, there was a volunteer chaplain who would do something there. They might have sports activities. They might have dances. They might have uh, discussion groups. Uh, Oswald Chambers put his emphasis very much on the spiritual. And so um, he said at some point that uh, the other uh, YMCA superintendents were surprised oftentimes by how popular his sermons and lessons were. They, they didn't expect that to be the case, but the soldiers really, really responded to, to what he was doing. Now, we mentioned that he uh, spent time in Egypt, and that's where his life ended, but he also traveled elsewhere, including here in the United States. Tell us a bit about his, his travels and what the purpose of those travels were. He had been involved with a group in England called the, the Pentecostal League of Prayer, and that was an interdenominational group that was just trying to call people back to, to praying and, and to personal holiness. And uh, while he was a part of that group, he met a Japanese evangelist, a man named Juji Nakata. And Nakata had had uh, connections in the U.S. He had studied at uh, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and he had connections with uh, a place called God's Bible School in Cincinnati, Ohio. So Oswald and Nakata did make a trip to the United States in 1907, 
they visited this God's Bible school. Uh, they had a lot of outreach and camp meetings. And then Oswald came back uh, for each of the next four years. So he actually spent a lot of time in Ohio, which is kind of interesting. And uh, he did make some other visits throughout the East, uh, places in Pennsylvania. Uh, he was in North Carolina. Uh, he was in uh, Rhode Island. Um, there was also, though, on his first trip there in 1907, a, a cross-country train ride where he ended up in Seattle. And from Seattle, he took a ship across to Japan. So that very first trip of his was an around-the-world trip. It was about eight months in length. Let's talk about his uh, Oswald Chambers uh, wife, uh, Truda, as her family uh, called her. What was their relationship like, and how did she contribute to or influence his ministry? It's such an interesting story of how they came together. He he actually met her in his brother's church. Oswald's oldest brother was a pastor, and uh, Gertrude or Truda was in his church, and Oswald met her briefly uh, a couple of years before they really came together in a romantic way. Um, it happened that on Oswald's second trip to the United States, um, Gertrude was also traveling to the U.S. on the same ship, and her mother uh, knew of Oswald and asked if he would kind of oversee her trip. Um, their daughter, many, many decades later, said that uh, that, that pleased and embarrassed <laughs> uh, Gertrude uh, Hobbs was her name. But uh, on that uh, ship's journey, they just found that they had a real connection. He was 33 years old. She was 24 but they had so many of the same interests in, in including this, this deep commitment to, to Jesus. So once they reached the U.S., she was looking for a job in New York, but they corresponded by letters. And really within just the matter of a, a couple of months, uh, they had pronounced their love for each other and were actually starting to hint at marriage. Um, when they did get married then, as I mentioned before, she was a stenographer, very accomplished at that. Mm -hmm. And she kept records of just about everything he spoke publicly. And that is how we come to know Oswald Chambers the way we do today. She, she just had so many notes and spent decades literally assembling and editing them and, and creating books out of those. Well, due to illness, she was not able to complete her education, but she was determined to learn shorthand and imagined herself someday being the prime minister's uh, scribe, if you will. And that uh, that gift, that skill uh, was used in a very different way. But you're right. We would not have uh, known much of Oswald Chambers uh, had she not been so diligent in her efforts to keep records of his teaching. It really is an amazing story. And of course, uh, you know, we, we give her a lot of credit for that. But it's a God thing. You know, yes. she she wanted to be the stenographer for the, the prime minister, but uh, she ends up the stenographer for the, the king of the universe. <laughs> uh, now, the two of them had a daughter and um, the, the family was a warm, sweet family um, that lived together. Yeah, as a family, um, it's uh, an amazing picture that um, they were all together in Egypt. Uh, this little girl was only two years old when uh, Biddy and Kathleen moved to Egypt with Oswald. And really, the, the women of the family had a huge impact on the soldiers as well. Oswald taught and he worked in their lives regularly, but uh, Biddy and some of the other students that he had taught, others who had followed him into this uh, ministry in Egypt, 
they worked with the soldiers. They they had, uh, you know, teas on Sunday, and they, they just uh, made a, a touch of home there. And interestingly, even as a very young girl, we, we have a poem in the book from a soldier. Um, he just uh, said in this poem how he, he saw this little girl praying, and she was so sure that somebody was listening, and, and he said, it just makes me wonder. You know, that, that was the ministry that, that even a three-year-old girl was having on people. Mm. Well, let's talk about how he ministered to the soldiers during uh, during this time of war, and many of them would come back to the base where he and others were stationed, but would go back out into um, hostile territory. Talk a bit about the, the ministry that produced the writings that, that um, we have become familiar with. Well, he did speak to so many men in large public sessions. Um, this, this YMCA hut could accommodate up to 400 men. And uh, there were times when it was packed out. Uh, there were other times when, uh, because of the coming and going of the soldiers, maybe there weren't as many men. Uh, but Oswald also built other facilities there. Uh, he had a smaller, what he called a devotional hut, which was a little more intimate uh, with with uh, individual men. And uh, you know, just in terms of uh, what he he taught, we we know that uh, we know those words because uh, Biddy captured those. But then he had a lot of one-on-one interactions with men too. He he would just he would meet them in the hospitals. He he would walk with them on the sands and talk about their needs. He would meet them in his own home. Um, it just seems like this man was just tireless. It's incredible how much he did uh, when you look at, um, you know, the, the amount of work he put in in a day. In a very short life. He uh, had uh, was diagnosed with appendicitis, and in those days, uh, responding to it is not it was not as refined as it is today. And he died ultimately of complications related to uh, appendicitis. Yeah, from our perspective, it's kind of a sad thing. Uh, he he came down with this pain, and he knew he didn't feel well, but he tried to uh, proceed through it. He he kept trying to teach and doing his job. Um, before long, he realized he actually needed to ask people to fill in for him. He wasn't able to teach, but um, he didn't want to take a hospital bed because the soldiers were just about ready to, to start a new, um, a new campaign. And he was afraid of, of being in the, the way of a, a soldier who maybe who had been injured in, in battle. But uh, by the time the pain actually became so intense, uh, it was a couple weeks later, he did go into the hospital he had an emergency appendectomy, and it appeared to be successful. Um, but a few days later, it ended up that he uh, had blood clots and, and hemorrhaging in his lungs, and that is what, what ultimately killed him a, a couple of weeks later. So age 43, he died far, far from home. He, he is buried in Egypt among the soldiers that mm-hmm. he served, and that, that is a, a huge honor to a, a volunteer chaplain. And there's a, a stone Bible that features uh, Luke 11, I believe, his uh, one of his favorite scriptures um, em, emblazoned there. Well, the book is really a, a wonderful tribute to his life and a great uh, resource for those of us who appreciate the work that he and his wife did. It's simply titled Oswald Chambers, A Life in Pictures. Uh, the book is, pub- is published by Discovery House. Paul Kent, thank you so much for talking with us and for the work that you've done. Well, you're welcome. It's great to talk to you, Georgie. Appreciate it very much. Again, uh, Paul Kent's Oswald Chambers, A Life in Pictures. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the top 50 countries where it's most dangerous to follow Jesus have been published in Open Doors 2018 World Watch List. It's an annual ranking of the 50 countries where it's most uh, challenging to follow Jesus. Approximately 215 Christians now experience high, very high, or extreme levels of persecution. That means one in 12 Christians live where Christianity is either illegal, forbidden, or punished, according to Open Doors. Now, for decades, North Korea has uh, clearly been the world world's worst persecutor of Christians, but now another nation nearly matches it. Uh, Kim Jong-un's country hasn't moved from the number one spot on the list uh, for 16 years in a row, with more than 50,000 Christians in prison or labor camps. Such a ranking is little surprise for the totalitarian regime that controls every aspect of a life in the country and forces worship of the Kim family, according to Open Doors. But rivaling it this year is Afghanistan, which ranked number two by less than a point. North Korea's total score was 94 on a 100-point scale, pushed above Afghanistan's 93 by a 0.6 difference in their violence rating. In the other five categories measured, private life, family life, community life, national and church life, both countries received the worst scores possible. Says uh, Open Doors USA President and CEO David Curry, never before have the top two countries been so close in incidents. Both countries are extreme in intolerance and outright persecution of Christians in every area. Open Doors monitors. Well, the rising persecution in Afghanistan is a tragedy considering the efforts being made by the international community to help rebuild the country after failing to ensure freedom of religion. Uh, Curry went on to say reports of violence and human rights atrocities from North Korea are are pervasive, while the situation faced by Christians in Afghanistan may be underestimated. It's uh, hard for Westerners to imagine a second country could uh, nearly meet the levels of persecution seen in North Korea, but Afghanistan has reached that level this year. Well, Afghanistan has almost always been in the top 10, marked the fifth worst overall over 25 years of open door research. Over the past several years, the majority Muslim country has been uh, inching its way up from number six in 2015 to number four in 2016, number three in 2017. Well, trailing a few spots behind at number five, Afghanistan's neighbor Pakistan, according to the most violent, um, or rather recorded the most violence against Christians last year. The country also scored the highest in church attacks, abductions, forced marriages, according to Open Doors. It also recently drew the ire of President Trump, who last week cut off Pakistan's military aid over frustrations with alleged Pakistanis' assistance given to terrorists in Afghanistan. That same day, the U.S. State Department announced the addition of Pakistan to a new special watch list of governments or entities that engage in or tolerate severe religious freedom violations, yet aren't bad enough to be named a country of particular concern. Well, it may not be for the U.S. government, but for those of us who are believers, it is a country of particular concern because our brothers and sisters are suffering there. Nigeria at number 14, where Boko Haram operates, and the Central African Republic at number 35, ranked second and third for violence. The U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom has recommended that the State Department add Pakistan, Nigeria, and the Central African Republic to its list of countries of particular concern. So so far, rather, they have not been added. Rounding out the top 10 following North Korea and Afghanistan are Somalia at number three, Sudan at number four, 
Pakistan, number five, Eritrea at six, Libya, seven, Iraq, eight, Yemen, nine, and Iran, ten. It's not a coincidence that all of these countries, except North Korea and Eritrea, are predominantly Muslim. In fact, Islamic extremism remains the global dominant driver of persecution of Christians responsible for initiating oppression and conflict in 35 of the 50 countries on the list, Open Door states. The Islamist movement is uh, the part of Islam which embraces a clear political agenda for bringing nations under Muslim domination and Sharia law. Again, quoting Open Doors, the movement has three parts, individuals and Networks that use violence to advance their political agenda or their goals, those who reject any system based on non-Muslim or non-Islamic law, but uh, who aren't violent, and those who interact with society by voting or campaigning for Islamic law. The movement manifests itself in Muslim-majority countries by trying to radicalize society and in Muslim-minority countries uh, by radicalizing Muslim communities. One example, every day six women are raped, sexually harassed, or forced into marriage to a Muslim under threat of death due to their Christian faith, Open Doors reported. That number is likely low since it includes only reported incidents. It also points to the double persecution for both their gender and religion that Christian women face in much of the world. So as you're praying, remember them as being of particular concern. The majority of the countries on the list saw an overall increase in persecution from 2016 to 2017. Five of the six countries where persecution increased the most were majority Muslim, with the notable exception of India, which moved from number 15 in 2017 to number 11 uh, in this most recent uh, recent, uh, report. So what's the newest threat to the persecuted church? Radical Hinduism and Indian nationalism, according to Open Doors, they're driving factors in the increasing levels of unrest and instability, Christian's faith. In uh, 2014, India scored only 55 points, while during the 2018 uh, reporting period, researchers found 81 points to the nation, one of the fastest and most intense increases seen. India's Hindu nationalism has been growing since the election of nationalist uh, Narendu Modi, the prime minister in 2014, and has highlighted by the election of a nationalist president, Ramnath Kavind, last summer. Under Modi, religious freedom violations against Christians, such as social exclusion, abuse, and imprisonment, have spread unchecked. In 2017, Open Doors counted more than 600 persecution incidents, though most cases actually remain unreported, so the true number is much higher, the organization said. India's religious nationalism has swelled over its borders, spilling into neighboring Nepal and capturing that country onto the list, and halfway up it, at number 25 in October, Hindu-majority Nepal took aim at evangelicalism by criminalizing religious conversion. The Pew Research Center has noted increasing social hostility there as as far back as 2015. Well, is there any good news? And there's much more we could say on the opposite front. In addition to Nepal, um, Azerbaijan joined the list this year, number 45. They replaced the sub-Saharan African countries of um, uh, Comoros and um, Tanzania. I know it's not pronounced that way any longer, but They ranked 42-33 respectively in 2017. Tanzania is the most eye-catching example of a country where the situation for Christians considerably improved, Open Doors says. The majority of Christian uh, country was struggling against a Muslim majority that was growing more radical when President John uh, Mukfulu 
uh, McFooley, rather, was elected in 2015. His administration made some serious uh, work of cracking down on radical Islamist groups, and that has improved the situation there. Ethiopia's violence was directed against both Muslims and Christians who were protesting the government, asking for more democracy and an end to corruption. In Kenya, the uh, Al-Shabaab Islamist group killed more than 30 Christians, beheading many. And this seems to be a new tactic to instill fear in the Christian community, but there has uh, apparently been some improvement there. Syria is another country where fewer reports of violence against Christians were hardly a cause for celebration, but at least was something of an improvement. Again, Open Doors produces the report, and you can uh, Google them online or just go to their uh, their website for more details about their 2018 World Watch list. It can inform your praying and help us better understand the challenges faced by believers all across the country. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, we're going to talk with Anthony Davenport. He's the author of Your Score, an insider's secret to understanding, controlling, and protecting your credit score. How much do you know and understand about the credit score? How they arrive at the numbers and whether there are mistakes made, how you can monitor the accuracy of your report and who's actually using it. And you would be, you might be surprised to learn that it's more than just uh, those who are dealing with money. So we'll talk with uh, Anthony Davenport about that tomorrow. Also, as you probably know, Thrive, a girls' night out, is coming up. And while it's all sold out, I've invited Crystal Thornton, Kat Taylor, and Summer Shore to join me to talk a bit about the event. It won't be the it will be the first, but it won't be the last. So if you didn't have the opportunity uh, to join us for this event that's coming up on the 27th, there will be future events. And we'll give you something of a vision of what we hope for women in our listening audiences. And I'm referring to KPDQ, AM and FM and The Fish. Uh, They'll be joining me tomorrow on the program. So look forward to that conversation. Well, I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for producing, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. We'll talk again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.